You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Hey, Henry, thank you. Good morning, everybody. It's really, really good to be back with you. It's, it's, it seems like it's been too long, but grateful for, um, for Mark and, and, and others uh, subbing in uh, during my, my time uh, away from this class, but we're going to begin a series on, on Ephesians, and it is not my intent uh, to uh, spend eight years in, in Ephesians, uh, but what I'm not going to do is to be bound by my titles. Uh, every once in a while, I'll teach a class and I'll think, we didn't quite get to where we needed to go, but because I've already given my title and it's running the adventurer, uh, we're going to have to move on to the next thing, uh, and, and so... Uh, Every class is probably going to be entitled Ephesians, uh, and, and we'll, we'll just end up, because uh, we actually are only uh, looking at the first half of verse 1 uh, today. Um, but don't, don't let that worry you, because there's a lot to unpack uh, here in Ephesians, and it's really uh, a wonderful, wonderful letter. But before we get into it, let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and uh, the beauty of your word and how Ephesians uh, causes the imagination of our hearts to come alive and to see how glorious the gospel is. We pray that this would be true uh, in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I just prayed, uh, Ephesians, you know, a lot of people will say that, that Romans is the clearest articulation of the gospel uh, in the Bible. I think that's true. It's very systematic. Uh, some people have a hard time, and, and even I will wrestle through it, especially it gets kind of heavy going in Romans chapter 6. We are trying to figure out exactly what, what uh, Paul is getting at, and it takes, uh, you can't take anything at face value. That's where you're bringing in commentaries and trying to look at various and sundry things. Uh, and Ephesians, though, I would say, uh, if Romans is the clearest articulation of the gospel, Ephesians is the most brilliant and by brilliant, I mean beautiful. I mean, Paul really talks about the brilliance of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, as he lays uh, out uh, for his dear brothers and sisters in Ephesus uh, who this Jesus is and what he's done for them and what it looks like to be in community with one another. Now, uh, many of you are probably familiar with this letter, but one of the things that I really love to do is when Paul is writing a letter to a church someplace, is to go back into Acts and to see the founding of the church. And Ephesians is one of those. You can go back to Acts 18 and see the founding of the church in Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila. And then later on, you remember toward the end of Acts, when Paul is going off to Jerusalem, uh, the Ephesian elders have come to him in Miletus, and he pours out his heart to them. This is where I mentioned this in the sermon last week, where Paul talks about, I spent three years with you, and it actually may have been three and a half years, the longest he'd ever stayed with any of the churches uh, along the way on his mission. And so he had a deep affection for the Ephesian Christians, and uh, he said that for three years, he preached through tears. And so he has a deep and abiding love uh, for the Ephesians there in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus today, if I had my little slideshow, I'd be clicking right now. Ephesus today is in ruins. 
It's south of Izmir in Turkey, and uh, it was at one point in time uh, the principal city in that area of the province of Asia, right? So if you, if you look in the back of your Bibles every once in a while and you see all those maps, and you'll notice that one of the provinces there is called Asia. Well, Ephesus was a principal city there, and even though it's in modern-day Turkey, it was a Greek city. Uh, the Athenians were the first to colonize it and had a great temple to Diana or Artemis there in the middle of Ephesus, and that temple is considered one of the great wonders uh, of the ancient world. And there's actually a, a model of it that you can see uh, online if you wanted to, to see that. So it was a great metropolitan area, and as Paul was wont to do, he would go into these metropolitan areas and plant a church. And he would normally plant this church uh, by first going to the synagogue and preaching, and then with Christian converts, they would go and they would plant this church. And this is really the story of how Christianity grew in the world, is that Paul and others would go into an urban center, plant a church, and then out from the urban center, the Christians would go. So the, the MO of the early church was not to plant churches in villages. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I grew up in a very small church uh, in, in the, town that I, the town that I grew up in. It was a small church, and you only, had a, you only had so many people that you could convert in a small town. And so if our church grew, it meant somebody was ticked off with the Presbyterian minister. Right? But in a city, it's different. Uh, and not just that, cities shape ideas, don't they? Uh, and, and even today, uh, there's a great movement through uh, a a ministry called City to City, to plant churches in the city because the cities have a disproportionate influence over the nations that they're in, um, for good or for ill. And so rather than saying, well, so for instance, uh, I can say this about politics because it doesn't really affect us, but one of the reasons why Brexit happened, uh, and I'm talking about the Brexit within the past couple years, not Brexit 1776, uh, but the Brexit that we had over the past couple of years, uh, what everybody was saying who voted for Brexit is that London is not England, and they have too much control. They have too much money, and they have too much influence. That's what everybody was saying, and one of the principal reasons why Brexit happened. Now, rather than saying, okay, here are all these negative, in their mind, uh, all of these negative consequences of a city having disproportionate power, the church and Christians saw it as, this is why we ought to go into the cities and convert them. Because what if that power could be harnessed for God and redeemed for the good of the nation, rather than bringing division? So that's why Paul and others were going into the cities in order to establish these churches. And like every other church that had been established, uh, it was a good mix of Gentile and Jewish converts to the Christian faith. And of course, that meant that there were going to be problems in the life of the church, which we'll see. Uh, but by and large, uh, it was, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it was Paul's favorite congregation, uh, but it's a congregation that actually was, well, I, I would go so far as to say it was maybe the strongest uh, in in the New Testament time. And we saw that it continued on because not only was Paul uh, very active in the church in Ephesus, the Apostle John also was there. 
and, and then successive generations of great Christian leaders were there uh, in Ephesus pastoring as well beyond the apostolic age, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. So that's background. You can go look up Ephesus uh, online um, and, and learn all about it. But I just want to talk this morning about Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, the word of the Lord. So it's a half a verse, and what could I possibly say about this? Well, our, our time is short, and believe it or not, I probably won't finish. Well, let's talk about what it means to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be an apostle? I'm sorry, what did you say, Kathy? A what? Encounter the living Jesus? Ah, uh, you've already said, well, the, now class is short. Encounter the living Jesus, David, what would you say? Studied under him? Sent? One who is sent, so that's the literal definition of the word apostle, one who is sent out for a particular purpose with a particular message, right? That, that's, that's the literal meaning, but, but what we're hearing uh, from Kathy and David is what the New Testament means by apostle, which is one who actually encountered the risen Lord Jesus and was given a particular office in the life of the church. So actually, we'll get to this uh, later on. Uh, in uh, Ephesians, where Paul talks about the different offices in the life of the church, and one of those offices is the office of apostle. Now, this is uh, an office that is confined to the apostolic era, and the reason is because of the definition the Bible gives us as to who qualifies to be an apostle. So, Let's look at some biblical evidence for this and, and why this is so necessary. So if you go back uh, to, uh, I'm going here, just a minute, I'm sorry. Uh, if we go back into uh, Jesus' encounter with, um, with Thomas in John chapter 20, now you remember leading up to that, Jesus had appeared to the disciples, right? But everybody was there but who? Thomas, 2024. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. That's an editorial remark that John makes. He wants you to know John wasn't there, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of his nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now Jesus had appeared to the other disciples, why, did, why wasn't that good enough? Why would he, eight days later, come back and manifest himself to Thomas? Because Thomas needed to see the risen Lord to qualify him for an apostleship. My Lord and my God. Jesus wasn't responding to the challenge of Thomas so much as Thomas was asking, the, Thomas was like, hey, look, I, I need to be able to see this. I need to be able to, to believe it. Uh, I, I need to know, 
It's funny, though, that in John's gospel, it doesn't tell us that Thomas actually ever reached out and touched Jesus. But simply by beholding him, he cries out, my Lord and my God. And so the qualification for being an apostle in the church is to have had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that if you had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus that you were automatically an apostle. Because we know that Jesus appeared uh, to many. Um, that, that, that's uh, evident uh, in the New Testament. And yet, not all of them were apostles. And so, how is it that Paul is an apostle? Because Paul doesn't really come on the scene until the stoning of Stephen early on in Acts where he's holding the coats. And at this point, Jesus has already ascended to heaven. So how is it that Paul can call himself an apostle? Right? Damascus. Hey, there we go. He's on the road to Damascus. And what happens? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Right? Jesus appears to Paul, he has this encounter uh, with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why Paul says, uh, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So it's not just witnessing the risen Lord Jesus Christ, an actual physical manifestation, uh, but also uh, by the will of God that he was chosen for this particular office. And this happens all the time. Uh, I, I think it's... Um, yeah. I mean, how often is it that we're kind of going in a direction in our own lives and then God interrupts that? And most of the time, that's a terrible inconvenience to us. And some of us maybe even resent God for that. God, this was not the plan that I had for you to give to me for my life. Where was Paul going when he was called, to the, when he was called into relationship with Jesus and when he was called to be an apostle? He was going to Damascus. What was he going there to do? He was going to get Christians, kidnap them, and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial, where he knew that he could get them executed. An extrajudicial killing, but executed nonetheless. And so would you say that Paul is this guy, his life was headed in the right direction, and he was on a trajectory to meet Jesus? What was the response of the church when they heard that Paul had been converted? That, that Paul? <laughs> the Paul that's tried to kill us? I, I mean, it, it actually took the Lord appearing in a dream to Cornelius to say, hey, he's okay. And even then, you know, just sort of this, ah, I, I don't know. And of course, Paul wasn't immediately thrown into ministry. He went off to Antioch and, uh, and studied and, and, and learned and was built up in the ministry before he was sent off. But God went out of his way and displayed his will by taking somebody who seemed, not seemed, who was going in the opposite direction of God and turned their life around and used this individual to turn the world upside down for Jesus. Now, even though the office of apostle is restricted to the apostolic age and there are no apostles alive today, that doesn't mean that God can't use you in the same way that he used Paul. Because the same spirit that dwelled within Paul and the same Jesus that called him into relationship is the same for you and me. 
Paul makes this point, that the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you and within me. And so if we, I mean, we all have excuses as to why uh, we're not turning the world upside down, and some of those are really, really good excuses. Uh, but I think Paul probably had better excuses. Now, the one thing that Paul had going for him that some of us don't have going for us is that Paul was single. Do you remember being single for those of you? It's, it's hard, uh, but you didn't realize how free you were until after you were married. And by that, I mean the illustration that I always use that I think is so funny. When I married Lauren, I, I came from a family where dinner was on the table at 6 o'clock. It was meat and three and biscuits every night. And Lauren grew up in a family that were displaced Mediterranean people that liked to eat at 9 o'clock at night small portions. And I mean, to this day, when we go to, when we go to Shea Lulu, Lauren says, eat before we go. Uh, and, and I do. Uh, and, and something as trivial as, as how you eat and what you eat. When we got married, all of a sudden, I'm just like, I don't know how this is going to work. Right now, now, my world has been completely, my culinary world has been completely turned upside down. And although I'm grateful for the exposure, um, I no longer have the freedom uh, to express Andrew uh, at the dinner table. It's just never going to happen again. Um, well, you see what I, or if, or if you came home and said to your husband or wife, God has called me to the mission field in China. Maybe you're a doctor and God has spoken to you and said, I want you to to, to go underground and to go to Wuhan and minister to these people who are dying of the coronavirus. Just think about that, would, how your spouse would respond to that. As my grandfather would say, the Holy Spirit gets blamed for a lot of things the Holy Ghost would never do. Right? Well, you see, with Paul, he really only had to consider himself, and so he was given this freedom, which is why he talks about the blessing of singleness, not that it's the ideal Christian position, but being single actually allows him to travel all over, to the, all over the Mediterranean world. He does, when he's in Ephesus for three and a half years, he doesn't have to worry about, well, you know, the kids just aren't at a good place in school right now. Everyone's sort of transitioning grades, and maybe we could wait a little bit until they, you know, we can move from Ephesus High School to over Corinth High School if we move then. Uh, these, these things are not under consideration. And so if you're single today... Think of the limitless possibilities of how God can use you. No matter your age or your station in life, that you're free to have a ministry like St. Paul. And it may not mean, although, wouldn't it be terrible to have to romp around the Mediterranean? Um, I always think it's so funny when I see these pictures of people who go on uh, the footsteps of St. Paul and there they are on the sea cloud in the Mediterranean uh, going from place to place. Uh, but you have the ability to do that. And that's something that all Christians should seriously consider. What is God's call in my life? What's his will for me? Now, it may be that God's will for you is, Henry, I want you to sell cars for the Lord Jesus Christ. And rest in that. And at the same time to say, you know what? But God has blessed me with, with the resources that I have. And so even though I can't go to the ends of the earth, even though I can't go to Wuhan, I'm going to support people who do. It may not be very much money, but I'm going I'm to support that endeavor or I'm going to give to my church family in order to support the endeavors that God has led us to here at the Advent, and I'm certainly going to pray for them. 
So one of the things that we've developed that's floating around here somewhere is a prayer guide where every day of the week we say, we want you to pray for this following mission partner. And it may not be the ends of the earth. It may be Brother Brian just down the road. And it may be that God isn't using you to, to stand up in, in the uh, Areopagus and, and to preach, uh, but it may be that God is using, is, wants you to go down and help out at a place like Brother Brian in order that Jesus Christ might be known to the nations. Because Lord knows uh, we need as much Jesus here as we do in Wuhan, don't we? And so Paul, submitting himself to the will of God, realizes that he has no other choice than to bend his own will to God's will. Uh, This is the experience of so many Christians that, that it's as if you can't do anything other than what God wants you to do. The prophet says that it's like a burning within your bones a fire that you can't keep trapped, that you must do it, that you, you must go. I mean, this was Hudson Taylor, the great English missionary to China, uh, who was once asked, uh, why are you going to go to China? There are plenty of people here in England that need to hear about Jesus. And he said, well, that's absolutely true. And he said, but if I don't go, who will? Understanding that there's a singular call on your life Now, more often than not, what I found is that when God calls you to do something and you pass on it, one, as I've been saying, you may be miserable, that God actually might affect your life in such a way that you're just uncomfortable because you know you're not where you're supposed to be. You're going to feel agitated. But two, what I've also noticed, and no offense to Hudson Taylor, I do think that Hudson Taylor was the man called to do it and that God was going to work on him until he said yes. But what I've also noticed is that when people pass on those things, that God can and will raise up somebody else to do that which he's called you to do, and you've missed out on a tremendous blessing. And some of you are sitting here today, and you've got these nagging thoughts in the back of your mind, and you're thinking, I regret that I didn't do this for Jesus. Now, I don't want you to stay there because of what I want you to know is that it's not as if God is up in heaven wringing his hands saying, well, I'm just really upset that Bill didn't do this for me and now what am I going to do? Uh, but at the same time to say, Lord, I want to listen to you and I want to redeem even that what I feel is that missed opportunity in my life uh, to make a difference for the Lord Jesus in the life of somebody else. And just last week we heard from Donna Dukes at Maranathan Academy of the great work uh, that she's doing out there for critically at-risk at risk, uh, teenagers. Uh, there are any number of things, and if you're wondering what is God's plan for my life and how does he want me to be involved in gospel ministry, if you need help with that, there are any number of people here at the Advent who would love to talk to you about that. And one of the great things about the Advent is we try not to program things. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Like you go to some places and everything is programmed. Every, you know, they've got all this stuff. But one of the beautiful things about the witness of the Advent is that over the years, through the generations, it's not so much that we've had a targeted mission to this or an organized effort to that, but God has taken somebody's heart and changed it and led them to go and do. They didn't need a program. They just went and did it. And so I think about the disproportionate influence that this congregation has had in the life of our city. And I don't mean necessarily things like 
the beginning the Love Lady Center or, or things like that that we've done, uh, but, but I mean things like getting involved in, in public office, getting involved in the life of the city, really seeking the betterment of the city, which is what Jeremiah talks about uh, in chapter 29. And so we're not all that different from Paul. Now, that's my introduction. So apostles. The main thing when it comes to apostleship is that they have a very specific task. They're ones who are sent out, but they're sent out to transmit a message. They're there to pass on a message. So in the church today, uh, some people might refer to bishops as successors to the apostles in the sense that they're Bible apostles like Paul or, or any of the other, or John or any of the other apostles, that, that can't be true. And why can't that be true? They have not physically encountered the Lord Jesus risen. So that's not the kind of apostle that they are. And in fact, if we wanted to say, if the closest thing that we would have today to an apostle is someone sent out, which would be a missionary, Right? That, would, that would be closer to what we have today. And yet, there is an apostolic function for a bishop, and there is an apostolic ministry within the life of the church for you and for me. And we see that uh, in uh, the New Testament throughout. I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with chapter 3. So this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, just across the sea there. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So what is the apostolic ministry? Paul delivered to the church in Corinth as of first importance what he received. And what did he receive? That Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared. He, he, he was a witness. Now, of course, this is not all of the Christian testimony, uh, but Paul is making the point here that I'm passing on to you this precious gift of the gospel, the truth of God as written in God's Word that is up to you to pass on to successive generations. And so sometimes you'll hear the phrase apostolic succession. And anybody that tries to tell you that apostolic succession means that you can take one bishop that is alive today and trace back from that person, you know, that person who laid their hands on that person who laid their hands all the way back to the apostles, historically cannot do that. It, it simply cannot be proven. And what Paul says here is it doesn't matter. What matters is not who laid their hands on who. What matters is what? That the apostolic truth, 
the message of the apostles given to them by the Lord Jesus in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and by his very mouth is passed on to successive generations. God doesn't have grandchildren. God has sons and daughters, and each successive generation has been tasked as the apostles were tasked to take that message and to pass it on to their children and their children's children. This is Jesus when he says that, look, that the promise is not only to you, but to your children's children and to the peoples of the earth, right? to pass it down from generation to generation. Now, in the first instance, this is passed down through the life of the church. And I'm going to put that to, uh, aside uh, for just one minute, uh, because, uh, and I want to talk about how it's passed down uh, in the, in a normative way in the life of the Christian family. Uh, the conversation uh, started this way when my six-year-old asked me, Now, Daddy, when you weren't a Christian when you were my age, when you were six, if you died, would you have gone to hell? Anybody? Just kidding, <laughs> right? A six-year-old is asking this question, and it's, it's obviously on her mind, and, and she's thinking about that. And, and I think she's, what she's really trying to grapple with is the difference between my testimony, which is one of, of not becoming a Christian until I was about 10 or 11 years old, right, and her testimony and my children's testimony of those who have grown up in the life of the church and have never really known a point in time when they didn't know Jesus. Now, we did have the conversation about the point at which you are going to have to appropriate this faith in Jesus for yourself. You're going to have to make it your own. You know, it can't be dad's Jesus. It can't be mama's Jesus. It has to be your Jesus. And in the life of our church family, this is normally confirmation, right, where, the, where the, the sixth grader gets up and there's nothing magical about sixth grade. This is not, you know, a Gentile bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. It, it's, it's really, and if a kid said, look, I don't, I don't believe in Jesus, then the last thing we would want is for them to get up and lie to the congregation and lie to their parents uh, about their faith or lack thereof uh, in Jesus, and so the girls started engaging me in this, and they said, so no, it was just dumbfounding. They said, nobody told you about Jesus? And I said, well, not my immediate family. And I said, but, um, but my great-grandmother did. My Aunt Mary did, which my middle child is named after her. My Aunt Jeannie did. My Uncle David did. My Uncle Ray did. Uh, these were men and women who wanted to pass on the apostolic faith. And, and not to preserve an institution, but that I would come to know the living God. And so they would talk to me about Jesus. And so I, I'd heard about Jesus, and there was a sense in which I, I knew that he died for my sins. I was actually able to articulate the gospel message. I, I knew all of that, but the penny hadn't dropped until the summer after my fifth grade when I was shipped off to VBS because, I mean, VBS is, br in the town I grew up in, it was basically free childcare. Like, I mean, my mom was like, y'all are Baptist this week, you're Methodist next week, and, you know, you're going to be Presbyterian the week. It's just like, we're, we're ecumenists. We're, we're, we're... And, and frankly, my parents could care less about the content of the teaching, just that they would get out. And it was there at VBS, at Hamilton Baptist Church, uh, where Jesus became real to me. 
And, and there was a, he was not only my savior, but I came to a realization of what Jesus had actually saved me from. I became in touch with who I was as a broken sinner. And not just that Jesus saved me, that he was my Lord. And I said, God, you can have my life. I know that there's no other way, that you've now intervened in my life, and I have no other option but to follow you and trust you as my Lord. That's the apostolic faith passed on. That's what we want to pass on to our children. That's what we want to pass on to one another. Not reducing someone to a spiritual statistic to say, oh, well, the Pearson boy got saved, now we can just move on. Because the life of my congregation, and I grew up Episcopalian, invested in me and began to work with me and to encourage my call so that I'm standing before you today. And so we little St. James Church in Montrose, Virginia which wonders what impact could we possibly have for the kingdom, God used and is the reason why I'm standing before you today. An apostle by the will of God. And God has willed that we pass on this apostolic teaching rooted in the scriptures to our children and our children's children. And that is the task that God has given us. And by God's grace that we would turn the world upside down for him with changed lives. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you uh, for the witness of the Apostle Paul and his great love for the Ephesians. And Lord, we pray that you would give us a great love for your people. And really what it means to have an apostolic ministry here in the life of our church in the Advent, uh, but also in our own individual lives, Lord. Uh, Lord, that you would use us that you would make clear what you would have us to do and that you'd give us the courage to follow after you, our only hope, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.